Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like linguistics, technology, game and object design, and ethics. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Theodora Dreyer, the research lead for climate and water at the AI Now Institute and research assistant professor at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. We're also joined by Dr. Amra Salomon, an assistant professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a founding member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice. Dr. Dreyer and Dr. Salomon, among others, collaborated to produce the report Water Justice and Technology, covering topics on both North and Central America. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Some of these models of water policy that we need to move away from as we move into an era of water scarcity. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between relief, like the COVID relief stuff or climate change relief and repair or reparations? This is such a central question and I think it ties into a larger paradigm flip that the authors with us together, but also in people's respective work and domains are working on, which is to move away from climate crisis policies that are anxiety-driven, that are reactionary, that are future-orientated, that are profit-driven, and instead be acknowledging of the deep-rooted causes of the climate crisis, which are colonialism, which are extractive economic systems, and be able to acknowledge and contend with these histories. Collectively, in this report, we reflected on the role of relief in water policy. Everyone's reflections vary from North America to Central America across different types of water contexts. There's a lot of different stories around what relief is doing in water policy. But common to these pieces is seeing that relief has been used as a mechanism to advance those sort of reactionary policies that are future-orientated, they're often associated with tech solution programs that are abstracted from lived environmental contexts that are doing those quick solutions, fly to Mars, carbon capture, electric cars. So these are rapid response anxiety-driven solutions. Repair and reparations, these are concepts that come out of questions about indigenous sovereignty, especially with land back. They come out of the civil rights movement. They come out of black radical thought traditions. They are also being formed in legal contexts. We're saying we need legal reparations. Why do you call it anxiety-driven? Is it sort of like it has to just be solved now and we have to do something now and we need a thing that does a thing to solve it now, to have a thing to solve I mean, is that sort of the vibe? Yeah. So my use of the term anxiety comes from my doctoral research. One of my objectives 
in giving history to algorithmic computing was to demonstrate that these systems are not objective and rational and that they're driven by effective dimensions. And I isolate a number of these effective dimensions that operate in computing and they're mirrored in the actual technical apparatus themselves. And one is control, and one is uncertainty, and one is confidence. And so a dialectic in my work is between confidence and anxiety. I'm just in the liminal space between those things. So I see the absurdity of an Elon Musk figure saying the most grandiose narcissistic confidence you can imagine. We need to fly to Mars. But then the technology itself, the data, the algorithms, they never fulfill their objectives. So this is like the deep paradox about optimization is these systems can never achieve what they're designed to achieve. They're always running at 95% certainty. And so there's been a lot of scholars through the 20th century who've theorized anxiety. There was a French psychoanalyst named Lacan. He said that anxiety is the gap between an object and the object's pursuit. So I see these programs to control the environment, to control natural resources, but also to control data about natural resources as this never-ending pursuit that just keeps reproducing itself. The devastation of this is that it causes irreparable and permanent environmental harm. It perpetuates genocide. It's life and death context. And so I see these effective dimensions baked into algorithmic processing systems, especially when we're talking about natural resource acquisition and control. And I think it's important to continue to demystify these systems and see them as extensions of these historical processes rather than magical cloud designs that aren't human affected at all biases of a lot of these systems is that they're designed to perpetuate the system from which they were created, which is capitalist exploitation of natural resources, development, exploitation of natural resources, and then colonialism. And so that's the limitation of the framework that they operate within, is that they're kind of always perpetuating that, even if they're designed to relieve us of a particular crisis created by that system. The solution is just a continuation of that system that created the crisis. A lot of our work in the report is critiquing that project of you know, seeing the COVID crisis combined with climate change to create this impetus for further harm through these disaster capitalism policies. There's a bunch of things I want to unpack here, but can we just talk about one tiny piece that I can't get out of my mind? Some of the bills that have passed, even since you wrote this report, or that might be passing in the future, you know, they're really pushing us towards electrification of everything, you know, and like, if we can all just have electric cars and electric jetpacks and solar panels, and it'll all be so groovy, and we won't have to worry. And I was really shocked at the way that your report goes back to the assumption of what's the best belief or the best technological solution 
maybe if that's the question you're asking, it looks like electrification. But if you're looking at what is repair or reparations, the electrification as it's being dealt with in a relief context is hugely damaging. So I'm part of a, a collective called the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about questioning the premise that innovation and technology and science should be driven by this need for electrifying everything. We find that all in and of itself incredibly harmful and damaging, not only to human sociality and life, but also to the life of the planet and all of the other beings that share this space with us. And it's funny because there's like pop culture references too. like there's one of the newer Planet of the Apes movies that's like an allegory for this story, right? <laughs> Where the apes have gone back to nature and the humans like create this war because they need to turn this hydroelectric dam back on and therefore wreak havoc and destroy everything <laughs> because they have to have the electricity, right? And so it's this kind of question of like, what is driving that need? And it's often not the need of everyday people, right? Going through your daily life, you know, yeah, there's definitely uses for electricity. There's ways that it can support people who need, for example, medical equipment. You know, there's different things that electricity can do and help with, but much of our need for it is actually created, manufactured by corporations and by folks trying to sell us stuff that we don't actually need. And it's kind of a convenience that actually complicates your life and makes it more cumbersome. And so unpacking that to scale back and think about, oh, which of these tools that were being marketed is actually convivial, that this assumption that development makes life better, and actually it just makes life much more complicated and alienated and creates a lot of these social problems like anxiety. And so if we're going to innovate tools, are they allowing us to have a more convivial living situation and sociality? Are they allowing us to connect with each other or are they actually alienating us and making us dependent on the tool? And so in the battle of the humans versus the apes, we're on the planet of the apes side. <laughs> we're, we're, we're definitely raising the question that electricity shouldn't be the goal. Electrify everything actually does not produce conviviality. It takes it away in many ways. And so we have found ourselves going back to these earlier movements, like the slow growth movement of the 70s. We turn towards indigenous resistance and indigenous communities who are fighting to protect ancient ways of life and think about, okay, what do we really need to center here in order to make sure that these ways of life continue and, you know, that we're supporting Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous autonomy and the ability for people to say no to development. What we're thinking about is, okay, how can we actually understand the long history of this particular climate crisis? You know, if people are being marketed, for example, a solution to the fossil fuel crisis coming from car companies is an electric car, a battery operated car. Where is that battery coming from? That battery is being produced through immensely destructive mining practices going after very rare minerals or even abundant minerals that are difficult to extract from the earth, such as lithium. And so when we started connecting with indigenous communities that were fighting to protect their water, their sacred sites from these lithium mines, we noticed that these bodies of water are in the driest deserts in the world and they are finite. They're often primordial bodies of water, either salt flats or deep groundwater aquifers. 
that will not be replenished once they're extracted. These were created millions of years ago when that climate was lush and wet and humid. And because it's a desert now, that water's just not coming back. And so if we take it out for this car battery that's going to last maybe 10 years, that water is gone forever. You know, and that way of life that that indigenous community had been fighting to protect for thousands of years since time immemorial is also gone. And to us, that's not justice. And that's not a solution that we should be pursuing. And we've been looking at problematizing everything from the assumptions about will an electric vehicle actually reduce carbon emissions, um, not as much as it's being marketed, but also it requires so much energy and water and fuel from diesel trucks to do the mining itself of the minerals to produce the battery that it cancels out any emission that it's going to be reduced it's just another gadget being sold to us, but it's not going to actually reduce the problem that we're trying to tackle. But what will happen is that these very rare sources of water in the driest deserts of the world will be gone. And that's what we wrote about for the report. To me, it feels very real because if you know anything about what catastrophic climate change is going to do in your neighborhood, <laughs> you do want to say, well, what can I do? I think part of what you're problematizing some of these questions does is that it makes me, the reader, say, what can I do that won't disrupt my totally comfortable middle-class existence? Like, can I keep everything the same? Like, can I have all my same things? Yeah, and it's also like just even the framing of that question often gets posed upon an individual, right? That it's an individual who is going to have to solve this problem by radically reworking their own life or making huge sacrifices to their own quality of life. And that's also a false solution. The solutions to large scale problems are going to have to be collective and large scale. So there's a lot of marginalized communities across the world who have already been sacrificing their access to clean water. They've already been sacrificing a quality of life, you know, as poor people, as marginalized people for centuries. The sacrifice is really going to need to come from the top down. Thinking about water consumption, for example, everyone gets scolded on this individual level to turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth. And that's somehow going to save us enough water to deal with the drought. And it's not. But larger entities like the military base in your state that's taking up a large amount of water, the golf course down the street, there's these large entities that are using vast amounts of water for no reason for decorative landscaping or for corporate jobs that probably sucks. <laughs> the individual brushing their teeth is not the person to be scolded here or ashamed, but it's rather the structure that provides more water to, for example, huge plantation agriculture or golf courses or military bases that are using the largest amount of water and wasting it. And then also creating oftentimes work structures that kind of suck for people who have to work at those jobs, you know, where workers are also being exploited. There's a moment there where we can kind of think about the connection between being forced into labor that's exploitative and then the extraction of resources. And those are moments where we can actually push and think about collective action and restructuring, really restructuring the larger economic and labor system that we're in. Theodora, Amra, thank you so much for taking time out of what I presume are your busy schedules to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. And if you would like more information about some of the work that Theodore Dreyer is doing and Amra Salamone and their group, you can visit AINowInstitute.org or the hyphen C-I-E-J 
www.newmexicohumanities.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. So you can find me just sitting at my...